this week I was, I was reminded in uh, my studies, uh, an interview that I had heard um, years ago, it was in t- 2016, I remember watching the, the Rio Olympics and there was an interview after the U.S. won the silver medal in the synchronized diving, um, I remember watching this interview and just being really shocked by um, the athletes and how they responded. The athletes were David um, Bodier, I'm probably saying that wrong, but and Steele Johnson. And they were asked just some quick questions, and uh, the reporter got a little more than what she was anticipating, I think. And it went like this. So she asked, and she says, what does it mean to come out and medal here in the, synch- um, in the synchro event? And David um, answers, and he says, yeah, I think, I think this past week there's just been an enormous amount of pressure. I felt, I've felt it. You know, it's just an identity crisis. When your mind is on this, thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind just goes crazy. But then he says, but we both know our identity is in Christ. And then the reporter says, she says, well... Um, and Steele, uh, for you, uh, your first uh, Olympic event, how were you able to, uh, to maintain your composure so well? And he, he says, well, I think um, the way David just described it is flawless. The fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the results of this competition, it, it just gave me peace. It gave me ease and it let me enjoy the contest. If something went great, I was happy. If something didn't go great, I could still uh, find joy because I'm at the Olympics competing uh, with the best person and the best mentor, just one of the best people around. Then he says, so God's given us a, a cool opportunity, and I'm glad, I could, that I'm glad I could have come away with an Olympic silver medal in my first event. And uh, it was just kind of a stunning moment. I think even as we watched it, we were like, wow, did that just happen? Um, but we see these athletes who are, it's assumed that their identity um, is all about getting this medal. This is all their life is about. In some ways, for the Olympic athletes, it really is. And they came out and said, no, um, our identity is in Christ. So we could be at peace in this. And we live, I think, in, in, in any era. Um, but right now, it seems to be heightened um, that there's identity crisis around us of those just seeking identity and there's just being great, great confusion. And even in our, in our own hearts, in our own lives, there's times where we're just, we are seeking identity and it can weigh on us at times and, and some seasons heavier than others when we're just trying to seek identity and so many different things and wondering, do I measure up? And we feel that. And then our cult comes in, and we have a modern culture with its modern ideologies, and even with the pressure of, of, that comes from social media, especially for, for our, the younger kids, younger generation, and girls especially, that just comes in where they're called uh, to, um, to, to, to question everything, that everything about their identity is fluid from, from their gender to sexuality, to even, even your species, your kid, there, we're in a culture which could say that maybe you might realize that you're a dog in a, in a human body, and, and you, can, you can run with that. I'm not joking. That's a true thing. Um, and what confusion that makes for, um, especially adolescents, is they they already struggle to figure out who they are. But we're reminded their identity, and uh, something I know we've sort of uh, we taught our kids even growing up our identities in, in Jesus Christ, a rock-solid identity that we have in Jesus that isn't fluid. Um, 
it's solid and secure, and we can be thankful for that. And in this story with John, or this, this true story, I don't say it as a, a fictional story, the story of John, as he gives his testimony, we find that as questions come of who he is, he keeps saying, not about me, it's about somebody else. And that's where we're going to see that he found an identity in something so much greater than himself. And he was one who's called to be a pointer of the truth. And so we are as well. So the question arises today, who is John the Baptist? And we're going to, again, quickly find out that John doesn't really want to answer that question. He's not all about himself in the moment. Now, today as we, we um, walk through these couple passages here, uh, the last couple of weeks I've been about five minutes shorter than normal, so I've kind of saved up some preaching <laughs> equity. So I'm just warning you, it might be an extra few minutes over today. Just heads up. Um, so the Broncos, we don't get to watch them lose till later this evening, so you got lots of time. So. All right, so begin, and we see this identity um, of John. It's really rooted in Christ as they ask him, who are you? Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews um, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So this is John's story here. But again, we see that John's story is about Jesus. And they ask, who are you? So religious leaders, are they're sent out. And probably, most likely, the Sanhedrin sends this group out, a priests and Levites, to question and find out who's John, what is his message, what's going on, because John has gone out. And to know it, it's not bad that they want to know exactly what John is teaching. That's a good thing, but it seems like they're coming in, not so much to, to really find out, but they come as, as critics um, to really discredit what's going on. And they see that even with, with Jesus. They try to discredit Jesus again and again and again. But here, um, things are being stirred up with John. Crowds are coming out to John the Baptist to hear what he is teaching. And he's stirring things up. And the religious leaders, they want to know what's going on. There may be maybe a bit of jealousy, maybe a lot of jealousy going on as crowds come out. And in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have uh, the account, we have a little bit of a description of the crowds that are coming out to hear John, John the Baptist preach. This is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He was preaching, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said. So then he quotes from um, Isaiah, and he's saying, we hear that, that John the Baptist, he's fulfilling this. We'll look to, at this a little bit later, but it's quoted Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. And then it goes on. Now, John, he wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. So an interesting guy. This, it, it was, they were saying, this is, un, this is not normal. Um, he's a prophet. He was out there. And uh, as it continues, this is, and they were baptizing, and he, they were baptizing, being baptized by him in, oh, let me, I, I skipped a verse ahead. Sorry, verse five. This is an important one. I got to go back. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So people from all over coming out to hear to hear John. So they sent out this delegation to ask this important question, who are you? 
And we're going to see that John doesn't use this moment to promote himself uh, in this question. He has an opportunity he could have lifted himself up and to promote John the Baptist, maybe um, but get some shirts printed out, some hats, whatever it might be. And we do, we live, we live in a time where it's all about where self-promotion is greater than ever because you can self-promote uh, by just opening up your own Instagram account or Facebook or you can have your own podcast. You can self-publish your own book. You can self-promote um, as, uh, just like none other time. But here we have one who, John, um, crowds are coming out to him. How is he going to answer this? Verse 20. It says, he confessed. And he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So here he's saying, he freely, clearly confessed, I am not the Christ. That must have been the undercurrent in the crowds and in that day. Is he saying that he is the Messiah? And he says, I am not the Christ. I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophesied Savior who has come to reign in the line of David as king, I, I am not the Messiah. Instead, we're going to find he, he points. He's the one that came to point to the Messiah. He's the one, as we saw earlier in John, that he is the one who is pointing to the light, but not the light. So he doesn't take this opportunity to, to step into the spotlight of prominence of John. Yes, I'm John the Baptist. That's not what's happening here. Instead, uh, we're going to see in verse 30, and we already saw in verse 15 last week that John, one of the things he, he says is, is that he ranks higher than me. Jesus ranks higher than me. Messiah that's coming, he ranks higher than me because he, he was before me. And, and we're reminded that John the Baptist was actually uh, born before Jesus. So he's talking about the preeminence, remember, of Jesus. And later in chapter 3, again, he's going to say a second time, he's going to say later on, I am not the Christ. Again, in chapter 3, he's going to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. So he doesn't use this opportunity to step into fame, to become big and famous. And really, the Christian walk with Jesus in, in ministry, um, either just ministry to neighbors or your family or in the church or whatever it might be, it's not about being big and, and famous and um, doing things fast and efficiently. So we see something different here. One book I really like, and I go back to one specific chapter, and I've probably mentioned it before, but it's, it's one of the books that's back on the shelf by Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor and author, and it's called Crazy Busy. And it's a great little book. It has little chapters about busyness in your, in your family and with media, and all, it's all sorts of different things. But one of the chapters is called The Terror of Total Obligation. And sometimes um, in the Christian walk where there's a lot of voices saying, do this and do this, do this, that we feel that terror of total obligation. And um, in that chapter, he says one of the things that's helped him is the taking on the creed of John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. Uh, I am not the Christ. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of that, that we are not the savior of the world. We're not the savior of our kids, our grandkids. Uh, but Christ is, and where we can rest in that fact. And he says, John says again, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Savior. I'm not him. Continues on in verse 21. So they ask him, well, what then? <laughs> Are you Elijah? And again, the answer to this is, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. So what's he talking about Elijah? Well, Elijah 
you remember, he's a, a prophet from the Old Testament. Uh, and Elijah was one who was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So he did not die. He was taken up. And then in Malachi, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament canon. So Malachi, there's this prophecy of Elijah that will come. And if you remember, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a, an age of just silence from prophets, from God speaking, uh, about 400 years. There's some silence there. And, and there was a call that there would be, an, Elijah would come back. This is from Malachi. Let me just read some of those verses. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the, his temple. So he's saying, hey, there's a messenger that's going to come and precede the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. And then later in Malachi, it says in verse 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's this prophecy that the messenger that's going to come and prepare the way, Elijah will come and prepare that way. And John says, no, I'm not Elijah. But the question might be, if you, you've read some of the other Gospels, you might say, well, doesn't Jesus say that, uh, that John is Elijah? Well, he does. But let's kind of walk through that just a little bit. In Matthew, um, we see that Jesus talks about John the Baptist and Elijah. Matthew eleven thirteen through 14 says, For all the prophets, this is Jesus that's speaking, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, speaking of John the Baptist, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Then in Matthew 17, um, 10 through 13, it says the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Then why do, you, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answers, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So, so we see that John the Baptist, Jesus is saying that he is fulfilling completely this prophecy of Elijah. No, John wasn't um, Elijah incarnate, uh, but he was one who ministered in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Before the birth of, of, um, of John the Baptist, an angel came to his father, Zechariah, and told him that your son will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So he came with the spirit and the power, with the ministry of Elijah, and completely fulfilled this prophecy, just not in a literal way. So it was kind of a surprise. No one was expecting it to the prophecy to be filled this way, but John comes in, and in a sense, in that sense that he came in the spirit and the power, and came as one who stood and ministered as the prophet Elijah he was, but it seems that at this point, even John, he's not really sure about that either, it's possible, that he understands that he is fulfilling this prophecy of Elijah coming, so he says, no, no, I'm, I'm not Elijah, and then continues and says, well, well, then are you the, the prophet? Again, John's like, no. What's the prophet? What are they talking about? Well, there was a prophecy that came to Moses that after Moses, at some point, that there would be a prophet that would come that would be like him. And that's in, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. And, 
And uh, John says, no, I'm not that prophet. And we know that that prophet, maybe in your Bible, probably in your Bible, it's capitalized, the prophet. And that prophet, the prophet is Jesus. Um, But so he's saying, no, I'm not. I'm not that prophet. And as you can imagine, um, there's a little bit of frustration kind of building up a little bit with these leaders. They're like, we're not yet. We're getting nowhere with this guy. All he's saying is, nope, not me, not me, not me. So verse um, 22, so they said to him, well, who are you? Who are you? You need to give an answer to those, or we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Again, that frustration. Please tell us something. We've got to take something back here. Help us out here a bit. So, so we see him continuing. He says in verse 23, he said, I am the voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he looks and he says to them, I actually, um, I'm the voice pointing to, really, to the word, as we see in context of John. And he looks to an Old Testament prophecy that does point to him. This is Isaiah 40, he points to, Make straight the way of the Lord. And we read that a little bit earlier in that Matthew account. And um, in the context in Isaiah, this prophecy um, originally was for the people that were returning from Babylon. They were taken captive and they were in exile in Babylon. And, and it was a prophecy of them returning to Jerusalem and the way returning would be made for them. But it was also understood uh, by many that this was also a prophecy pointing to the Messiah, that one would come and be a forerunner to the Messiah. And he's saying, I'm fulfilling this. I am the forerunner. I'm the one pointing to Jesus, preparing, making the way. I'm the one who's calling people back to God and being ready and looking for the Messiah, that he is coming soon. And he's saying, I am this one. So John, he wasn't the word of God, but he was the voice crying out in the darkness. And again, he wasn't the light, but he was bearing witness to the light. We saw that earlier in John. He might have said, if he was amongst us, he might see our sign about making Jesus non-ignorable and be like, that's what I'm about. I'm not about me. I'm, I want to make Jesus known. I want to reflect Jesus. And that's our call as well as we find our identity in Christ where people that when they ask about us, we can just keep pointing them to Jesus like those athletes. They, the, they wanted to, to, to make that interview about them and they kept pointing to Jesus and there's frustration there. But that's where our hope is found, so we can know that our identity is rooted in Christ as well, and we can be a people who point, who point to Jesus um, and make, making him not ignorable with those around us. And then we continue, and we see this continued humility of John, humility that's found um, and rooted in Jesus as well, verses 24 through 28. It says, Now, no, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So still there's that question of, well, who are you? We're a little confused about this use of pointing to the Isaiah passage and, well, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this. Who are you? And you're baptizing. This, the question really is, what authority are you baptizing? What are you doing here? How are you able to baptize these people? What are you up to? And one thing, as I, I study through this, I think it's an important cultural note as we think about 
baptism um, during that day and how they saw it. Uh, this is one helpful note that we, it's good sometimes when you're like, what's going on here? Sometimes we, you can look at some cultural notes and find some information. And this is from um, uh, an author and um, a professor of the Bible and a pastor who's passed away now, but R.C. Sproul, and he said this about this baptism. He said, it's important to understand that the ritual of proselyte baptism had arisen among the Jews. This is where someone who's a Gentile um, outside of the Jewish community wants to, to become Jewish, wants to worship the one true God, and they're baptized. And well, he speaks about it here. This is during the intertestamental period. That's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, it said that uh, this baptism was limited to Gentiles. It was not administered to Jews, only to non-Jews who converted to Judaism. For Gentiles were considered unclean and therefore needed to go through the purification of uh, purification right to, to, to take a bath, as it were in order to be welcomed and received into the covenant community of Israel, so there was a, a need for them to, to be baptized, and there was a ritual of being baptized, and is a picture of becoming clean and entering into the, the community of God. So this was happening, but then uh, Sproul and others would point out that again, this was for Gentiles; it wasn't for Jews to be baptized. So here, though, John is coming in and he's calling Jews to to repent, to turn from their sins, and and turn to God and, and be baptized and turn back to the one true God. So they need to go through this action of, of washing, that they are those who are clean, that need to prepare their hearts. And John comes and he says, time to, to repent, and be, they baptize them, and they're getting ready for this Messiah that's to come. And they're saying, why? Uh, why are you doing this? So John answers them. Verse 26, John answers them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So here uh, we, we see that John, he freely admits uh, that, yeah, I'm baptizing. But again, he's, he points this away from himself and points again to Jesus. He's baptizing because he's one whose voice, who's the voice who came to point to another who's coming, one who's in their midst at the moment, are coming soon. He says, he says then, um, but among you stands one you do not know. So he's saying, in your midst, coming soon, the Messiah. Uh, this is about him. This is not about me. So again, he turns that question, and again, he points to Jesus. He points to the Messiah that's coming, and he also says, the one that's coming, uh, the one that my baptism really is pointing toward and getting people ready for, I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals. Uh, and in that day, for uh, the person who in your home or at an event, if you were to go into someone's home or at a reception, who would take off the sandals and wash the feet, um, it would have been someone who was a servant or a slave. It wouldn't have even been a disciple of a teacher that would do that. So John's coming in and saying, I'm, I'm not even worthy of that. I'm lower than a servant in regard to how high this one who is coming is, the Messiah is. So he takes this moment where he could, with all the crowds coming out to him, 
He could have used this moment just to promote self and to build momentum and just go viral. <laughs> but instead, what does he do? He humbles himself and says, I'm, I'm no one. Uh, it's all about the one that's coming after me that's important. And I'm sure the religious leaders, they're still just scratching their heads. <laughs> what are we going to go back with now? Not sure what we're going to tell. And then we see continued verses 29 and following. We see clearly that that life and the ministry of John the Baptist, it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Verses 29 through 34. Let me read. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the next day after this confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus enters in to into our gospel that we're reading through. He arrives on the scene. Finally, Christ is here and he comes near and um, John again openly and freely makes that opportunity to point to the one that he's been pointing to and says, behold, says, everyone, look, pay attention. It's the one, it's the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And it's, it's an amazing declaration of Christ here in these verses. And the question is, well, as he speaks about the lamb, what's going on here? Again, cultural things, a lot of cultural things that are coming up. And it, here, the lamb of God throughout the Old Testament, God allowed a, a perfect spotless lamb to die in the place of sinners. And we see different places where a lamb and a sacrificial lamb pops up in the story of God's plan, pointing to ultimately to Jesus. And one of the first ones is in Genesis 22. Think of the story of of Abraham and Isaac. And if you grew up in church, you may know that story. If not, you might have to dig in and, and read a little bit about that. But God has asked, asked Abraham out of a, a call of, of faith and a testing of his faith to take Isaac and sacrifice him. But um, Abraham faithfully went knowing that the Lord actually would probably provide that lamb. Something different was going to happen. And even as they're going, if you remember, Isaac asked Abraham, he says to his dad, he says, well, behold, the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And then we see that in the, as the story goes on, that the Lord stops him, the angel stops him and from sacrificing his son and a ram is provided to um, sacrifice in the place of his son. And then think of Exodus 12, we have the story of the plagues in Egypt. So the Israelites, for 400 years, they're in Egypt, and they're slaves there. And the Lord goes, and he rescues them. He uses Moses to rescue them. But he sends all these different plagues uh, there. And the last plague, because Pharaoh continually will not allow his, the people, the Israelite people, to go, God's people to go and to leave. And uh, he, God tells the people, the Israelite people, that if they sacrifice a lamb, um, and take that blood and put it on the doorposts, around their house, that they, the Lord would pass over that home and spare the life of the firstborn son. But if they did not do that, um, there would be death that would um, come through that home. And then also, and then as the people of God um, 
are taken out of Egypt and the Lord establishes his law and the temple, tabernacle and the temple and the sacrificial system with his people, he allowed there to be a lamb that was slaughtered every morning and every evening. In Exodus 29, 38 through 39, we see that for the sins of the people. So there's this continual sacrifice, a, a lamb stepping in because we know that the wages of sin is death, as Paul teaches us in Romans, that because of sin against a holy God, um, there is a need for one to step in and take the punishment that we deserve for our sins, that we might be able to stand before a holy God. And this picture of a lamb in the, throughout the Old Testament reminds us of that truth and that and the sacrificial system that we need forgiveness. We need to be made right. And the Lord made provision, and that provision was pointing to Jesus. I also think in the Old Testament, um, one of the passages we often go to that just speaks so clearly of Christ as a lamb is in Isaiah 53, where it speaks of the coming of the Messiah. Let me read from Isaiah 53. Let me start in, let me start in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So we here uh, have this prophecy of one who would come and, and die for our sins. And, and Jesus arrives on the scene and John says, that's the lamb. He's the one who came to take away our sins, to rescue us from our sins. So this amazing declaration happens here. And then he continues. He says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, before he, because he was before me. Again, we've, we've talked about this last week and mentioned it. Again, he's pointing to Jesus, the preexistence of Jesus. He was before him. He ranks higher than him. It's about, this is the one I've been pointing to. He just declares these things and points everyone to Jesus. And then verse 31 says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but... He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So we see here, then John even says, he admits, he says, at one time, I didn't, I didn't know him. Um, and I, I think it doesn't mean that he hadn't ever met him because John and Jesus, they were cousins but he definitely did not understand, he did not comprehend, he did not see that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Lamb of God, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Word that became flesh. There was a lack of understanding in this, but then when the Messiah came, and he, he realized that this one actually is the Messiah. And when did he kind of find out? How, when did he recognize? When did he see that Jesus was the Messiah? When did this 
become real to him. And he does. He walks through that as we've read that at the time when Jesus came to John and John baptized him and the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and remained upon Jesus, he knew, ah, this is clear now. This is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God. I know it. Uh, One account from the Gospel of Mark is uh, of of the baptism of Jesus. Mark 1, 9 through 11 says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So you see, at this moment uh, is when it became clear. And John, the forerunner, was able to point clearly to Jesus. And it's significant, the Spirit ascending upon Jesus, because this is the prophecy that would come, that the Messiah would come, and the Spirit of God would rest upon him. There's several times in the Old Testament where we see that. So there's these old prophecies that were made of Jesus, and Jesus arrives in the scene, and he fulfills all of these prophecies. One of them, Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So saying the spirit of God would rest upon the Messiah. That's how you know when the Messiah has come. And John saw that. And then Isaiah 42, 1 said, Behold, my servant whom whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So we have this passage that points. And then another one, so it doesn't stop there, it continues to point to this. Isaiah 61, verses, uh, verse 1. And this, this passage, it's interesting, in Isaiah 61, there's a time where we see in the Gospel of Luke, Um, chapter 4, where Jesus, he goes to his hometown, he goes to Nazareth, and he is in the synagogue there, and he reads, he gets a scroll out, and gets Isaiah, and he reads this passage, and after he reads it, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is what he reads, Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And he says, he reads this, Jesus says this, and he says, I'm fulfilling this. And so the Spirit comes upon Jesus at the baptism, and John knows um, that this is the Messiah, and he's able to point to him. And then he says that, yes, I'm baptizing with water, but one's going to come who's greater than I am, and it's Jesus, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Again, the question is, well, what exactly is going on here? Again, this is, again, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that said that the Spirit of the Lord would be poured out upon His people. This is from Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28 in the Old Testament. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So there's this amazing picture. That's, I love that passage. That's such a great passage. That we see what Jesus does when we turn and trust in him that pours the spirit upon him as he cleans us. He takes out this whole heart of stone that we have and gives us a heart of flesh that we might freely obey him and gives us new life in him. And so what a, what a better baptism than that, um, given a new heart, new life, cleansed. And we see the Holy Spirit poured out upon God's people in Acts 2. We see the Spirit come upon the disciples, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they go out, and they're able to declare the gospel in all languages they've never studied. And I can't tell you how many times when I lived both in Ecuador and in China, I prayed for that Spirit to <laughs> anoint me, and He didn't give it to me. I had to study my study. So didn't we, Kelly? Yeah, we studied. I still get confused with my Chinese. So anyway, so, so yeah. But then also, those who later would then repented and believed, they were filled with the Spirit, when they trusted in Jesus. And they had that new life, that new heart from death to life. Again, that picture that a baptism last week when Caleb and Anthony were baptized. They went under the water. It was dead to sin and alive to Christ. As Christ died for our sins and rose again victorious, that we can have new life in Him. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Not at, not at the time of that baptism, but at the time that they repented and believed. They turned and trusted in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slave are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then verse 34, And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Again, John pointing to Jesus and he declares, This is the Son of God. This is the chosen of God. John, his, his life, his identity, his mission, his ministry, his testimony was all, all about Jesus. He spoke words of truth and called people to turn back to God. He wasn't drawing the crowds to himself um, just to make a name for himself. And he didn't draw the crowds to himself in any kind of pragmatic fashion as well. He wouldn't go out there wearing tight jeans and putting up smoke machines. He could have done that. But we have a bubble machine somewhere someday. We're going to have a bubble. But um, he, he was wearing camel-haired clothing and eating honey-dipped locusts. He was not, he was, he was, there was, you probably were like, okay, well, let's go see him. Um, <laughs> But he came, people came and they wanted to hear and they believed and they, and they were baptized and they returned back to God and they started looking for the Messiah as he pointed him to that. I wanted to read a quote from Dr. Cook, one of uh, the pastor that we, the church we went to in Kentucky, and he, he writes this about John. He said, notice that John, John was a voice, not in Jerusalem, not in a temple, but rather in the wilderness. He spoke for God in a geographical and spiritual wasteland. John's message and call to repentance resonated with people's hearts. People came with great, from great distances to hear him because he was a spirit-empowered spokesman, calling people back to God. When God's hand is, is on a pastor or a congregation, they will not have to use gimmicks to attract people. Today, as, 
is in John's day, people are hungry for an authentic word from God. They want to hear truth. So I'm probably not going to break out the bubble machine. (laughs) Uh, We just need to speak words of truth, pointing people to Jesus. One other thing I I just wanted to share that I read this week um, in another book I'm reading called The Care of Souls. And it's, just, it's called Cultivating a Pastor's Heart by a guy named Harold um, St. Bell. And um, although it's written toward pastors, I think it's, it's written to all of us. As we're all called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And we're kind of reminded um, of this truth and reminded that it's not about us. It says, pastors, we do not teach mere ideas and concepts. By their ministration, they bring Jesus himself into the hearts and lives of people ravaged with guilt, burdened with shame, and struggling with a burden, uh, I'm sorry, with, with, under a boatload of pain in all its uh, dimensions, physically, emotionally, spiritually, into empty, hopeless lives. Pastors, and say brothers and sisters, we present, we bring transcendent peace and hope. We comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. Wherever pastors bring the words and mysteries of Jesus, they bring Jesus himself. And he personally does the comforting. Jesus says, come to me. He invites and I will give you rest. So every lonely, God-forsaken soul in every age, Jesus comes again by means of the word he gives pastors to speak and the sacraments he places into the hands their hands to distribute. I think as we get to be, uh, just as John pointing people to Jesus, we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we speak and as we love and as we encourage to those who are burdened um, with struggles, burdened with shame and need Jesus. And we're reminded we don't have to do anything spectacular or amazing. We just walk and we take the word of God that we love and we love God and we love people as we go out. And we're reminded that the gospel, um, Jesus Christ, he is the lamb of God. Maybe you come in this morning and you recognize that you are one that are burdened with guilt, burdened with weight from this world, and you know that you need Jesus. And just a reminder this morning, or maybe a declaration, uh, to behold Jesus. He is the lamb of God. He came to take away your sins. He died in your place and rose again victoriously. And he says, turn from your sins, trust in me, and in me, there's eternal life. And John, the disciple, the apostle, he wrote this as moved by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit to write these words of truth, again, that we might believe. So either begin today and continue through our time in John. May your heart be stirred that your faith in Christ might grow. And may we go out as a people who are the hands and feet of Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your kindness to us today.